Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali, and you're listening to Peds Admit. We are here today with Dr. Marisu Rueda Altez, Future ID Fellow and our resident COVID-19 correspondent. Hi, guys. Happy to be with you today. Yes, so excited to have you. Today, we're going to talk about four of the big treatment options for COVID-19 that have been getting press, including hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, remdesivir, and tocilizumab. With the caveat that all the information that's out there, especially for remdesivir and tocilizumab, it's very limited so far. There's a bunch of clinical trials that are running right now, but we'll share with you everything that we were able to find about those drugs. Yeah, not official clinical recommendations, but let's get into it. Awesome. So let's start with remdesivir. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is? Yes. So remdesivir is a medication of the type of a nucleoside analog. And what that means is it's specifically an adenosine analog. And it acts upon the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And it causes premature termination of the RNA chain. So what does this mean? It means that it pretends to be an adenosine and it has the RNA polymerase use it to continue to create the RNA chain when this virus is replicating itself. And then it causes for that chain to end prematurely and for the polymerase not to be able to form a full RNA chain. And that causes the virus to not be able to replicate. And that would be a critical step for viral replication and for viral spread among the host where it is. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So it seems like an antiviral. What do we normally use it for? Remdesivir is a very broad spectrum antiviral. So in the past, it has been tested for single-stranded RNA viruses like Ebola, Marburg, and it has also shown activity against other single-stranded RNA viruses like RSV and Lassa virus. In the case of Ebola, however, in the clinical trial, it didn't show more effectiveness in reducing the mortality of Ebola compared to monoclonal antibodies. So the clinical trials were actually stopped. Oh, and do they usually use monoclonal antibodies to sort of treat Ebola? So yeah, right right now that's the lethal Ebola that's the center of care. Gotcha. Yeah, from what I could find in the clinical trials, the monoclonal antibodies took the mortality of Ebola, which is normally around the 50s percent to the 30s. With remdesivir, it kind of stayed around the 50s. So they didn't really see much effectiveness compared to monoclonal antibodies. Oh, gotcha. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then why is remdesivir a potential COVID-19 therapy? Uh, they knew that remdesivir was active against like RNA viruses. And as we have discussed in previous podcasts, coronavirus, specifically SARS-CoV-2, is an RNA single-stranded virus. So it had the potential to be active there. Then some researchers at Wuhan Virus Research Institute, they have conducted some in vitro experiments on human airway epithelial cells that were infected with SARS-CoV-2. And they found that remdesivir was the fastest and the most powerful antiviral compared to other substances that they tested. There has been a few cases of the use of remdesivir in patients with COVID-19, and they have uh, anecdotally had good response. Uh, one of the most notable ones was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was the first U.S. patient with COVID-19. And I think the medication was administered around day six or seven of illness. And then by the next couple of days, the patient had improved considerably. Oh, this evidence is very preliminary. And there's still no way to establish a causation so that the therapy caused a, a, a dramatic improvement in the patient. And that's why there's so many clinical trials ongoing. Wait, so there was one patient in which it worked really well. 
yeah, there's been a couple of more like those isolated patients that have gotten compassionate use approval of remdesivir mm-hmm. and they received it and then they had good results. But this is the most notable one that we have heard about. Oh, wow. And so when you think about that, the compassionate use is sort of like they cannot think of anything else that would help this patient. And then they finally put this on board and you see some recovery, but it's really only at the the one patient case study phase at this point right now. Exactly. So that that was the original way that they were able to use remdesivir for COVID-19 patients. But now that there's clinical trials ongoing, that's the way that adults and non-pregnant women are getting remdesivir when they have severe COVID-19 infection. As we're seeing this used or trialed a little bit more, what are some potential side effects to look out for? Yeah, so it was a little bit hard to find this part. I had to consult with some adult medicine friends who are actually right now using the the drug in their own hospitals. So this is what their attendings have told them to look out for. So number one would be hypotension. What I could find in some of the oldest clinical trials for um, remdesivir is that uh, one patient had this severe adverse event and they determined that this could be potentially associated to the drug. And it seems to happen most likely during the infusion of the actual drug. Then uh, second, it can cause some nausea and vomiting. And patients also have their transaminases monitor while they're getting remdesivir because they can be elevated. So there can be some degree of liver injury. And then finally, they also see uh, have seen a re- reversible kidney injury. But I don't think it has shown in any of the studies any like, severe renal dysfunction caused by remdesivir. Okay, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. So who would we not want to use this for? What populations would we not want to include? That's kind of unclear at this point because of how little we know about this. As any other new drug, it's right now only being used in clinical trials for male adults and non-pregnant females. Mm-hmm. I don't think there has been any any limitations in comorbidities. If we're thinking that it may cause elevated transaminases and reversible kidney injury, I'm imagining there could be some limitations in those kind of patients, but I didn't find that information. But for children and for pregnant women, remdesivir is only available as compassionate use. Gotcha. So being more careful in those populations. Definitely. We're always, always more careful. And I, I, I also know that uh, at least from, from the clinical trials that I've heard of, uh, it ha- is not being used either on other vulnerable populations like prison inmates. Oh, yes. Because mm-hmm. you can't enroll them in a trial even though they may be sick. It, 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 it's not that you cannot enroll them because that will violate the principle of justice when it comes to research, but it takes a lot more ethical consideration when you want to enroll person inmates because they are such a vulnerable population and they can be easily coerced into participating into research. Throwback to city training. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I've had to do those modules so many times that, uh, that that's why I was like immediately, principle of justice. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, So compassionate use only in the US. What trials are going on right now that are trying to study this a little bit more? So I found a few. There's studies uh, ongoing in the US and China uh, right now. And some of the studies that have been head sphere by the US are actually international. So they're involving some other countries as well. Uh, the main ones that I could find in clinicaltrials.gov were the University of Nebraska study, which is called the ACCT or ACT study. 
And that includes states in the U.S. like California, Washington State, Virginia, Alabama, Pennsylvania, among others. Uh, and as well as sites in Denmark, Germany, Japan, North Korea, Mexico, Singapore, and the U.K. And this trial is evaluating placebo versus remdesivir. So standard of care and placebo versus remdesivir plus standard of care. And remdesivir is 200 milligrams as the initial dose and then 100 milligrams daily IV for a total of a 10-day course. Then Gilead Sciences is the company that produces remdesivir. They actually have two ongoing clinical trials. One that is evaluating the safety of remdesivir and they are comparing a five-day versus a 10-day course. So same of uh, the 200 milligram dose, loading dose in the first day, but then one arm is just getting five days, one arm is getting 10 days of the remdesivir. And then the other trial is similar as the one that we mentioned before, the ACT trial. So it's 10 days versus just standard of care. And then the last one, which I thought was super interesting, is called the Solidarity Trial. And it's a clinical trial that it has been launched by the World Health Organization. And I don't think it's enrolling yet. But if you listeners have heard anything, let us know. From what I could find, it's not enrolling yet, but it has already 70 countries that have signed up for it. And it's basically an initiative from the World Health Organization to kind of just have all the information in one source and not have like multiple smaller clinical trials everywhere, but just have one really big organized clinical trial done in multiple countries simultaneously. And it, it's not only testing remdesivir, but it's it's testing standard of care versus uh, versus the use of remdesivir, the use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Another arm is lopinavir, ritonavir, so caletra. And then another arm will be interferon beta. Oh, wow. That's great. So there are studies looking at duration, there are placebo control studies, and there are most importantly, a multi-center trial that's going to be starting to enroll soon. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I know that the ACT trial and the Gilead Sciences trials have already started enrolling and they are doing it in a bunch of major adult hospitals. Uh, but I think the last one is not enrolling yet. The last one being the solidarity trial? Correct. Gotcha. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? If this pandemic has led to, I feel like, collaborations we never would have thought possible before this. I don't know if you'd be able to comment on this because I don't know if this information is publicly available, but Mm -hmm. whenever new or experimental drugs come out, we do always think about the cost. Do we have any idea how much this costs? I am actually not sure about the cost for remdesivir. I'm assuming it's pretty pricey if it's still owned by a pharmaceutical that has its like patent, but I'm not really sure. Interesting. Yeah. I know that Gilead is kind of trying to save up on the amount of remdesivir that they give for compassionate use now. So since late March, they're no longer giving remdesivir for compassionate use for a male adults or non-pregnant women. They're reserving all of those for the clinical trials. They have enough because as you can imagine, most of these trials are looking to enroll upwards from a thousand patients. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that they want to save up to have enough to be able to get some actual results. So they're only having compassionate use approved for, uh, as I mentioned before, pregnant women and children. Fascinating. So the populations that they haven't studied it in, Mm -hmm. those are the ones that they're allowing compassionate use for. Okay, that's just interesting. And is it everyone else? They're just going to be like, no, please try and enroll them in the study. Are they or is it just to conserve? I think it's a little bit on both sides. So they want to be giving these drugs in the control environment of a clinical trial, mainly because that serves two purposes. That serves the purpose of helping the patient, 
but also serves the purpose of getting more information into that pool that's going to give us the final answer of is this truly effective or not. And the reason why they're saving it for this population that they're not really doing clinical trials on is because when they're really sick, you just want to throw the whole house at them and make sure that they get all the treatment that they need. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. So just to summarize what we know about remdesivir, it is a pretty broad spectrum antiviral drug, a nucleoside analog. It actually causes premature termination of RNA chains, meaning that it actually kills the virus. It has been studied in the past for treatment of multiple other viruses, most notably an Ebola virus. And it has shown some in vitro efficacy against SARS-CoV-2 in terms of the virus's effect on respiratory epithelial cells. It has been used in a few cases in patients in the United States with some positive results. There's still a lot of information that we don't know, and we don't have really robust trials as of yet, but we're actively studying this, and we hope to get more information soon. Let's talk about tocalizumab. So just like remdesivir, all I can tell by the name is that it's a MAB or a monoclonal antibody, but other than that, I got nothing. Alice, what's it all about? So tocalizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody. It's an antagonist of the interleukin-6 receptor. So it's blocking interleukin-6 activity. Interleukin-6. Remind me again how that's involved in the immune response. Going back to our step one knowledge of immune response, when our body is facing a, a viral infection, it has kind of two options. You can Our adaptive immunity can go towards Th1 response or Th2. Th1 response is the one, the one that faces intracellular pathogens, and that includes viruses, as you guys know. So that would be the main response. And interleukin-6 is one of the cytokines that Th1 response produces, and it's, uh, all of them have the same characteristics of being pro-inflammatory cytokines. So they act really well at trying to eliminate this intracellular infection, but at the same time, they may have some harmful effects because of a, an uncontrollable cascade of inflammation. And when do we normally use tocalizumab. We've, we've used it before in other disease processes, right? Yes. So speaking of the cascade of inflammation, tocalizumab is used to treat inflammatory conditions. So it's been approved for rheumatoid arthritis, systemic JIA, Castleman's disease, neuromyelitis optica, giant cell arteritis, and cytokine release syndrome, which is often discussed in the pediatric oncology community. Fascinating. So cytokine storms, we know that in COVID-19, this is the dreaded part of the disease process. It's the part that we're trying to prevent because once patients kind of enter this uncontrolled inflammatory state, it's associated with very poor clinical outcomes. Have we seen this before? Are there other diseases that have been related to cytokine release syndrome as well? Yeah. So cytokine release syndrome is a common side effect of two common therapies that we use in pediatric oncology. So blinitumumab is a it's a bispecific t-cell engager it's also an antibody but it has two arms so a lot of the b-cell alls express the cd19 antigen and blinitumumab is a monoclonal antibody where one arm of the antibody binds cd3 cells and the other arm binds the cd19 antigen and this sort of brings the t-cells to the cancer cell theoretically and therefore works as a chemotherapy agent a common side effect of blina is cytokine release syndrome because you sort of think about the way that you're dangerously activating the immune system there, and this is one of the ways it can go wrong. Gotcha. And then can you talk a little bit more about CAR T-cell therapy? 
Yeah, so cytokine release syndrome is also a well-described side effect of CAR T-cell therapy. And in CAR T-cell therapy, T-cells are sort of more directly modified, quote-unquote, recognize the cancer cells and kill them. In these two clinical scenarios where we have the T-cells attacking the cancer cells, cytokine release syndrome can occur. And in that case, people treat it with many things, including ticlizumab. Gotcha. And I mean, we know theoretically that it could be helpful for COVID-19, but it's not necessarily something that's proven. Are there any studies that are going out there or are people just using it kind of like for compassionate use and that kind of stuff? Right. So the FDA has approved a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three clinical trial to really look at the safety and efficacy of IV tocalizumab. They're doing it in addition to standard of care. And this is called the Covacta trial, and it's all sponsored by Genentech, which is the company that makes tocalizumab. Genentech also pledged to provide 10,000 vials of tocalizumab to the U.S. and sort of left it up to U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to allocate those resources further. And there's also the clinical trial going on in China as well, which, you know, hopefully will provide useful results. Interesting. Good to know. And as we start to see this used more in clinical trials, what's the proposed dosing? The dosing is eight mg per cake, and it's a maximum of 800 milligrams per dose. Genentech recommends giving it as a single dose, but you may repeat the dose in eight to 12 hours. So I think it depends on how the patient is doing. That was super thorough. Thank you, Alice. I think what I understood, if I can summarize it real quick, is that tocilizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody that acts specifically against interleukin-6, which is part of our Th1 response. It's a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and it mainly works at dialing down this uncontrolled inflammatory cascade that we are calling cytokine storm, that it's been causing the most severe complications in COVID-19 patients. The cytokine storm has been seen before in other cases when it comes to side effect of other monoclonal antibodies and as a side effect of CAR T therapy as well. And tocilizumab has been used in those cases successfully. And there are, again, same as remdesivir, multiple clinical trials still ongoing that are trying to establish if tocilizumab is truly useful for COVID-19 patients. Thank you, Marisu, for that great recap of remdesivir and tocilizumab. This about wraps it up for part one. Stay tuned for part two, in which we do a journal club-style review of the evidence regarding the use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. 